This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Welcome to a special Saturday edition of Coffee House Shots. I'm joined by Sophia Gaston, Director of the British Foreign Policy Group, and James Versailles. The situation in Ukraine is getting more serious by the day. James, in your Times column this week, you say that it's just a sign of what Europe has to get used to. Yeah, I, I think America, for America, Europe is no longer the principal theatre. This, this is why it is not the Cold War all over again. America is now most concerned of Asia and the competition with China. And that, I think, Vladimir Putin, who is a great... I think he's more of an opportunist than a, than a strategist. He saw the US withdrawal from Afghanistan. He saw how uh, the Biden administration went easy on Nord Stream 2. And he said, right, let, let's take this Afghan logic that the US is now not... doesn't want to be distracted, wants to concentrate on China, doesn't want to look at other issues, and let's put some pressure on Ukraine and see what happens. Now... Biden hasn't done nothing. He has made clear that American troops wouldn't be sent to Ukraine to fight. But he has sent 3,000 US troops to NATO's eastern flank. They have sent a bunch of lethal aid to Ukraine. And they are involved in quite intense diplomacy to try and get a kind of properly, a set of sanctions that would deter Putin from acting. But I think that Europe has to face up to the reality that America interest in Europe is waning. And the next president, whether that is a kind of Donald Trump-style figure who holds NATO in kind of almost in contempt, or whether it is just someone from a younger generation who looks to the Pacific, not the Atlantic, you know, is not going to be as Atlanticist as Joe Biden is. And so Europe is going to have to take more responsibility for its own security. And that, I think, is going to mean all the major European powers spending considerably more on defence than they do. I mean, the Cold War peace dividend is over. And I think the only way you're going to have stability in Europe is with deterrence. And deterrence means that Vladimir Putin has to, or whoever succeeds him as, as Russian leader, has to believe that they will pay an economic and a military price for actions that, will de- that are aimed at destabilising their neighbours and Europe more broadly. Sophia, do you think that we are seeing in terms how European countries, how the UK is dealing with the situation in terms of their correspondence to Russia, a sense that they're having to take a bigger role? I do think that there is a recognition that this crisis is fundamentally a test for the new security landscape in Europe. And that is something that was needing to be addressed before Brexit. It's obviously become much more intensified as a question since then. You know, I mean, you couldn't have asked for a kind of more striking example of, you know, to to really force the question on, you know, I think the sort of two key or three key pillars of this. One, what is America's role in, in the European security equation going to be? Two, can the EU get its act together as a single cohesive foreign policy actor? And three, what is the UK's role going to be and the role of other non-EU partners in Europe and how are those power dynamics going to play out? Because as it stands, you know, those are three kind of fundamental questions about partners within the Western alliance. And the fact that those questions are not yet resolved, I think, you know, is obviously a huge contributing factor to Putin's confidence and his, frankly, his kind of 
risk tolerant and, and reckless behavior at the moment. He knows that, you know, aside from the kind of more direct gains that he's seeking from this conflict, he's already in many ways been able to notch up a couple of victories just insofar as revealing that this concept of the Western Alliance is absolutely under threat and that these bigger issues surrounding the European security framework are very much still needing to be fleshed out. And obviously, it would have been great if we could have done those in between these periods, you know, from the last time that Russia actually invaded Ukraine in 2014, right up until it now threatening a new invasion. James, when it comes to the role the UK government wants to play, Ben Wallace has also visited Russia uh, this week, along with Liz Truss. We've had Boris Johnson a meeting with the head of NATO. Do you think that the UK position on how they want to behave on Ukraine-Russia is matched by countries such as France? I mean, the UK has is, is trying to position itself as the Baltic states, Central and Eastern European states' most reliable security ally. It wants to be out in front. It has been much more forward-leaning on lethal aid than, say, France or Germany. And it is trying to say that, that it wants to be essentially the most hawkish power in Europe, pushing for NATO to do more, pushing for the you know, tripwire forces in, 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 in all these NATO states, and saying that it, it fundamentally rejects the idea of Russia's kind of entitlement to an era abroad. And, and I think you can exaggerate how much he did this. But an idea that Emmanuel Macron at least seemed to hear Putin out on in this long eight-hour meeting this week. At the same time, Germany is ambivalent about what to do about Russia. It's obviously its dependence on Russian gas is increasing. And I think that one of the things that you need to see on a European level is Europe working out that it's got to wean itself off dependencies on, on whether it be Russia or China that provide these regimes with leverage over them. So, you know, I think you can argue that perhaps one of the most important steps that's been taken in terms of the European security architecture that, that Sophie was talking about is Emmanuel Macron saying that France is going to build 40 new nuclear power stations, right? You know, things like that are going to be as important as anything else. I don't think Vladimir Putin, famous last words, is going to invade Ukraine because he knows that that would demand a kind of full-scale Western response. I think he's going to do something less dramatic than that and more of an incursion or the like because he knows that, for example, the big sanctions threat the US and the UK are trying to wield is to cut Russia off from SWIFT, the international banking system. You can't do that unless the governments of a whole bunch of central banks agree to that. If Russia were, for example, in the parts of Ukraine are already occupied by Russian proxy forces. Just replace those proxy forces with actual Russian forces. Would you be able to get agreement on that? Or would you, as as I said, would you just serve to highlight the splits in the Western alliance on how to deal with Russia? That, I think, is probably where Putin is looking for. That's the kind of kind of step he's likely to take, I think. Sophia, when it comes to Liz Truss's trip to Moscow this week, it's been the subject of quite a lot of criticism, but then also there's kickback to that um, after you obviously saw her counterpart, a Russian counterpart, walk out the press conference, insult her. There were figures in advance saying this might not be a good idea. For example, Robert Jenrick on Westminster on Sunday said, is it such a good idea to go to Russia when they might treat you like this? What do you make of it? I mean, look, lover of is a well-established bully. He is a belligerent actor, you know, trying to advance the interests of a dangerous regime. You know, he's a thug and he likes this kind of showmanship. I think he actually did let his emotions get the better of him. And, uh, you know, I think there there were some people who 
you know, in Westminster who looked at that and felt that the foreign secretary had been sort of humiliated. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think his behavior in that way was to be expected. That's par for the course. I think she held her own pretty well on the fundamentals and looked composed. If you think about this as kind of a global Britain exercise, you know, he's a very well-known established figure. Truss has a less established international profile. I think she did pretty well and maintained her dignity and, and kept on the message points in that in a way that, you know, I don't think was a guarantee. I, I think she, so I think she did pretty well. But I mean, you know, the, the question is about the utility of diplomacy. Now, a, a counterpoint to <laughs> what I mentioned earlier in terms of fragmentation in the West, it is true that if you look at the consistency in the positions on the West, you know, pretty much all of the big hitters in the alliance want diplomatic off-ramps, you know, agree that there needs to be a mix of both economic and military deterrence. All partners are sending some sort of military support and aid in some capacity. I think, you know, fundamentally that there's a decent baseline there. The, the problem is, and, and what we're seeing here is not dissimilar to what we're seeing in the Western Alliance on, on questions like China as well. It's always a question of just the mix in that balance and where people are falling on the spectrum. And, you know, I think someone like President Macron, he has huge belief in not only the power of diplomacy, but his capacity to individually drive it through. I think some other Western partners, including the UK, are a little more suspicious of that. And I think where it does get even more complicated is the fact that Ukraine themselves, I mean, some of these diplomatic off-ramps would actually grant kind of elections, special status to these regions in the east of Ukraine that Russia is already occupying, which is an absolute red line to the Ukrainian president. And he made it a point of his election campaign. So he feels he has a democratic mandate to resist that. So you've got a situation where Ukraine is in some ways highly dependent on a Western response for support, you know, whether that's kind of in terms of tangible hard power or diplomacy or sanctions. But at the same time, you know, we are also trying to make the case that Ukraine is an independent sovereign nation and we do have to respect their democratic mandate. And James, just finally on that, I mean, if these negotiations lead to all these talks, as you might put it, the warnings from the West do lead to Putin changing course or not going through a full invasion, not even going incursion. What do you think looks like? What does a compromise look like? What does Putin get, which the West would be willing to give? So I think what Putin wants is... Essentially, he does not want Ukraine to have a Western orientation. And the problem is that Putin is making Ukraine having a Western orientation more likely, in part by seizing Crimea. He has removed a large part of the Ukrainian population that looked more towards Russia than to the West, right? And secondly, uh, having a chunk of Ukraine occupied by Russian proxy forces has also increased a sense of Ukrainian nationhood, both amongst Russian-speaking Ukrainians as well as Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians. So, and I think this is where things get tricky. Putin essentially says, you know, Putin's view is that, that Ukraine should not be allowed to choose the West. What does the West then do if Ukraine wishes to choose the West. Now, I don't think realistically Ukraine is joining NATO at, at any time soon. 
I think the British view is that that should not be stated publicly because that would look like Russia was getting to determine what Ukraine could and could not choose to do. I think the French are more open in private to the idea of what one might call a kind of moratorium on the idea of Ukraine joining NATO, but you know, it ain't happening anytime soon. But I think this problem is not going to go away because Ukraine is looking increasingly looking to the West and Russia just does not accept that as a legitimate choice for Ukraine. When, you know, while as I think that the, certainly the, 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 the British view would be, well, hang on a second, if Ukraine wishes to look to the West, that is Ukraine's choice as a, as a sovereign nation. So this tension is not going to go away. And I think that you also see this problem, which is Putin feels very emboldened right now. Not only are the Americans clearly keen to reduce all their other commitments so that they can concentrate more on China, the gas price is high. And while as previously, Putin didn't have, if Putin didn't sell his gas to Europe, he didn't have anywhere else to sell it. He can now sell it to China. As China transitions from coal to gas, that produces a huge opportunity for Russia. Russia is already doing lots of work to create pipelines to send that gas to China rather than Europe. You are going to have to deal with an emboldened Putin and emboldened Russia for as long as gas prices remain this elevated and as long as there is such a shortage of gas. I mean, I mean, if you had said to, I think, any of us in this room three or four years ago that the US would designate Qatar a major non-NATO ally, we all would have looked at you like, you were crazy, right? But what's now happened is that the US clearly wishes to have a relationship with Qatar, which is in some ways akin to the relationship it had with Saudi Arabia during the oil era, because it sees Qatar as, as a major producer of, of LNG as being someone that can help out. You know, look at how Biden turned around earlier this year and said to Europe, look, we will try and source your alternative supplies of gas in case Putin turns the taps off so you can feel emboldened in the types of sanctions that you could apply on Russia. But I don't see this because I think that Putin wants this near abroad and for very uh, legitimate reasons there is a desire not to grant him that. I I don't quite see how you resolve that tension. Thank you James, thank you Sophia and thank you for listening.